the reading of scripture this morning, which you'll find in Romans chapter 13. Uh, We are breaking from the uh, exposition of the gospel of St. Mark. We'll return to it uh, in a few weeks. Uh, But I wanted to spend some time talking to you about the kingdom of God. Last week we talked about the kingdom of God and the kingdoms of this world as we turn to the book of Daniel. This morning we turn to Romans chapter 13 and also we're going to go back to chapter 12, the kingdom of God and good works. And then we'll follow up next week with another message. It's an important matter for us. It's Much attention is given to it in the word of God. And I know our turning to this portion of scripture may not... Uh, seem as uh, accustomed as to what we're used to, but I would ask you to uh, listen carefully, and if you'd like to follow along in the study notes this morning, there's some important things to guide us in our Christian life and faith. So from the Word of God, Romans chapter 13, verses 1 through 10, let us, uh, uh, verses 1 through 10, let us hear. Let every soul be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. And the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of God. And those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers are not a terror to uh, good works, but to evil. Do you want to be unafraid of the authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For he is God's minister to you for good. But if you do evil, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is God's minister an avenger to execute wrath on him who practices evil. Therefore, you must be subject not only because of wrath, but also for conscience' sake. For because of this, you also pay taxes, for they are God's ministers attending continually to this very thing. Render, therefore, to all their due, taxes to whom uh, taxes are due, customs, that is, revenue or fees, to whom customs, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. Owe no one anything except to love one another. For he who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, you shall not covet. And if there is any other commandment, are all summed up in this saying, namely, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. And we'll end our reading of the Holy Scriptures there this morning. Please be seated. We mentioned last week we uh, looked at the book of Daniel and of God's revealing his kingdom in the midst of the kingdoms of the world and the ways in which they were described in the dreams and visions in the book of Daniel. And God, by these revealed dreams and visions, one of those identified uh, kingdoms is the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire, described as debased and crude, like iron mixed with ceramic clay, and as a monstrous beast that Daniel says, I can't even describe it in human terms, even though he had given description of the other uh, kingdoms. Well, this Rome (laughs) that in uh, God-revealed prophecy and dreams is like a crude iron mixed with clay, uh, debased kind of image, and then of a monstrous beast. This Rome is the civil government under which the Apostle Paul lived as a citizen. Although he was born into a Jewish Pharisee family during the Judean kingdom of the Herodian dynasty, and by the grace of God's salvation, this same Paul that we know was called to be an apostle in the kingdom of Jesus Christ. But 
before his conversion to Christ. You remember he was Saul the Pharisee, and by his own admission, he was in the kingdom of darkness. So here is someone who lived contemporaneously in three kingdoms. I hope you caught that. (laughs) Why do we say three kingdoms? Because someone cannot live as a member of the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of light at the same time. See, he could live as a Roman citizen. He could live in the cultural context of the Judean kingdom, born into that kingdom. But he could not live at the same time in the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of light. But when we know of that powerful conversion and the story of the Damascus Road and how Saul the Pharisee breathing out threats and carrying Christians and and hunting them down and even consenting to the murder of Stephen, the witness of the Lord. We know how the Lord called him and changed his heart. He became Paul the Apostle. But do you also know that during his time as Paul the Apostle, he appealed to his Roman citizenship? And that he used his Jewish cultural identity in his Christian life and to carry on the gospel ministry. That's a pretty interesting information that scripture gives us about that. So the Apostle Paul's divinely inspired commentary on the God-ordained authority of civil government is surprising when we think about what the Roman Empire was at his time. It is not shocking to us. However, it should be acknowledged as complementing the teaching and the example of Jesus, what Jesus says to us about our relationship to secular authorities as well. We're going to look at that actually more next week. And then also we need to study this along with the balance of Scripture. This is not the only Scripture that addresses this matter. So, yes, I know it can be complicated. Uh, As a matter of fact, the comment was given to me before the service this morning. Well, that's going to be a deep one this morning, Pastor. And I know it's different maybe than what we normally address, but nonetheless it is very important. And it should be something sanctified and blessing to us as we consider how we are to live in this present evil, sin-fallen world, but we live to the glory of God in Christ. So there's a recurring debate, I don't know if you're familiar with it, there's a recurring debate about the relationship between Christian believers And God's creation ordinance of secular authorities, sometimes this is uh, given more general expression of culture, Christians in culture. But more particularly, it comes down to some some very uh, ongoing disputes and debates about what is the Christian believer's response, and not just the Christian believer individually, but even collectively as a church, what is the Christian response and responsibility to secular authorities? Now be careful. I know that word secular can be uh, loaded And I want you to understand, I'm using the word secular in a very denotative way as it comes out of Latin. It simply means time-bound. That which is in time and space history limited to this earth. Uh, Not essentially anti-God, anti-religious, or anti-Christian. When we hear the word secular, we often think of it that way. That which is anti-God, that which is anti-religious, or anti-Christian. I'm not talking about that at this point. I'm talking about that which is simply, by God's creation ordinance, earthbound, time-bound, and it is appointed and ordained by God with legitimate authority. And that extends from family. God has instituted families with authority, all the way up to national governments, which Paul is writing about here, as well as questions of responsibilities and duties culturally mandated by the moral law of God. You wait, wait a minute, preacher, what do you mean? Duties and responsibilities culturally mandated? 
by the moral law of God? Let me give you some suggestions. These responsibilities and duties that are culturally mandated, that God mandates, that God commands in terms of our living in the culture, and he identifies them through the moral law. God demands duties and responsibilities that are universally applied about the meaning of marriage. You don't, and I don't, nor does any other human have the right or authority to redefine marriage against what God says. Now, they can call it what they want to call it. They can do what they want to do, but they'll answer to God for it. And the moral law is clear as a creation ordinance what marriage is. We're fighting a battle in our own denomination at General Assembly. Uh, once again, re- we reestablished and spoke of the God-ordained cultural mandate and the creation ordinance of marriage only between a man and a woman. We went on record again. That's been done many times. We went on a record again this General Assembly to declare that. Because it's morally mandated from the law of God that we speak out to our culture. How about protecting life? That's been an ongoing struggle and debate and and contention. But that it is morally mandated that we as Christians, the word of God identifies for us that we are to protect life and that there is the legitimate taking of life. But God distinguishes very clearly between murder and the legitimate execution or the taking of life in self-defense or collective self-defense in war. I know these are not simple questions or simple matters, but God speaks to them. It's mandated to us in culture from the moral law of God that there is a right to honesty and to truthfulness and to the keeping of one's word and lawful oaths and vows and not to be bearing false witness and slandering and defaming others. There is even a collective application of law in regard to the reputation and the boundaries of someone else. There is from the moral law of God an acknowledgement of the right of private ownership and you're not to be stealing or have stolen from you that right in terms of private ownership and yet scripture addresses us even sometimes when those things happen. It doesn't validate the abuse and the breaking of that And it doesn't call us or allow us to have personal vengeance to the point of overstepping the boundaries that God has established. So that there's even a case law that's come into our uh, judicial system. And that is, if your life is being threatened so that there is someone with a weapon or a life-threatening situation and you use lethal force in the defense of yourself or the defense of your family, then that is not deemed murder. But if you can see and know that your life is not threatened, that a person is being abusive and a person is being threatening in in manners that do not actually do you bodily harm, someone who's calling you names and you use lethal force against them, that is not warranted or allowed. And here's a case law from Scripture that has found its way into civil law as a general equity of making a distinction that, you know what? Somebody else's life is more important than your stuff. Whoa, that's kind of hard to swallow, isn't it? Somebody else's life, their eternal destiny, because after life, 
In death comes eternal destiny. Someone else's eternal destiny, someone else's eternal soul, someone else's life is more important than your stuff. We sometimes don't like that. I like my stuff. I want to keep my stuff. I don't want anybody to mess with my stuff. God does not allow you to take the law into your own hands or the life of others to keep your stuff. Now, again, these are complicated issues, and they work their way out in a number of applications. I know it's not simple. I know it's complicated. But that doesn't mean we don't concern ourselves with it. How about the cultural mandate of the moral law in terms of the liberty of conscience? That someone cannot force your conscience. They may bring pressure to bear upon you externally. You may even suffer for it. You may even suffer wrongly for it. But no human institution or authority has has lord over the conscience. Only only God does. Um, And so you know, there there are others that we can make application of there uh, because the word of God does. And that's what I'm talking about in terms of this matter of secular authority that God has instituted through creation ordinance, that there is legitimate authority extending from the family up to the national government. There are boundaries and jurisdictions and limitations. That's one of the things that has worked its way out over time and and has been a, a tremendous application and study of the Word of God, that there are limited boundaries, that there are jurisdictions, that there is a rule of constitutional law, that there is liberty versus tolerance, and that there is a jurisdiction that is established in uh, checks and balances, and even the Scriptures use the term such as keys and sword. There is a tremendous history in our Christian uh, church that has given itself to the study and the consideration of these things. And and we need to know more about it. We do need to be interested. We do need to care. And I know it may be a challenge for you this morning sitting there and saying, "Why, why should I care about this? Because you live in this world with the name of Christ on you. If you've been baptized in the name of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you are bearing the image of Christ. You are called to His kingdom, translated out of darkness into light. You are to be light bearer. In the name of Jesus, you're to be salt and light in this corrupt, fallen, sin, fallen world. And you should care about how you live in the name of Jesus. So, as we concern this, not only as individual believers, but also collectively as a church, historically, extreme forms have been constructed and variously implemented with either the secular civil type authorities under the control of the visible church establishments, or the visible church establishments under the control of the secular civil-type authorities. And, of course, this is not just limited to Christian societies. This same contest, this same struggle between authority exists in other cultures and other religious societies. It's not just something that Christians deal with, but we have the greater benefit of the truth of the Word of God. And for Reformed Christians, because that's where we identify ourselves in the Reformed tradition and Reformed doctrine, taking seriously the Word of God and believing uh, the whole counsel of Scripture and searching it out and wanting to know. That's why we turn to a passage like Romans chapter 13 this morning and believe it speaks to us as Christian believers gathered into the worship of God this morning. We're not necessarily getting a passion narrative about Jesus dying for our sins, but because Jesus died for our sins, we're getting application for how we are to live in His name in a hostile world and against sin, but in his word and truth. And so this is why it is applicable in Reformed Christian theology, the doctrine of the kingdom of God 
is at the center of the debate about how Christian believers relate to the secular world as living in one kingdom or two kingdoms. It's awfully often put that way. There's a question about how do we apply the covenant of works and the covenant of grace, if you know those uh, theological terms and their application. How do we apply those things? How, what are we to learn from them? How are we to live as citizens of the, the city of God or citizens of the city of man? Do we live in both? Do we identify the realm of law and the realm of grace as never connecting with one another or having anything to do? Is there separation of church and state so that we live in some kind of uh, forced and artificial uh, kind of environment? Do we engage in social political activism or do we content ourselves with spiritual retreat? Are we concerned with refining cultural arts? Are they beneficial and useful? Or do we seek piety through asceticism in its various forms? All of these and many more are connected with this question that we have before us this morning. And I want to suggest to you that perhaps the one kingdom or two kingdom theories propose a false dilemma. When considering the question about how Christian believers are to live in a secular world, is it really one kingdom or two kingdoms? That's the, the current terminology. I know it's been used somewhat historically as well. But I want to ask you to, to maybe open up and consider thinking about that a little bit differently. Maybe a better starting place would be with the doctrine of the Holy Trinity and the messianic office of Jesus as mediator, distinguishing two crowns. That's what I talked about last week from Daniel's prophecy and the kingdom of God. And the two crowns that we could focus on and say, there is the crown of the creator God's universal sovereignty, and there's the crown of savior God's mediatorial kingdom of saving grace. They're not opposite to one another. They complement one another. The many crowns upon the head of Christ. So as not to be faced with either, either or, but both and, not one or many. Let me suggest to you in the doctrine of the Holy Trinity, the one and the many. The one universal sovereign creator God. The many crowns of his rule and dominion and Christ the mediator the second person of the holy trinity having taken from the father the gift of the office of mediation of prophet priest and king to be our savior he is the creator God with the trinity God the father God the son he never ceased to be the son of God second person of the holy trinity but there was something unique and wonderful and mysterious through the incarnation as he became the mediator of the covenant of grace and our savior so, if we can think of one and many in terms of the wonder of who God is and what he does, and therefore not galvanizing theoretical elaborations of one or two kingdoms that are mutually exclusive. I think that's hurtful. I think that's unnecessary. But recognizing scriptural revelations about two administrations or stewardships of one king who is creator and savior of the world. Now, a valuable scriptural Study offering connection and balance to this perplexing issue is the Christian believer's various involvements with the secular world from the doctrine of good works. Yes, you heard me. Yes, you heard me as a reformed minister. You heard me say that there is a doctrine of good works. I know that, that we tend to be defensive uh, from our reformational um, uh, struggle and from our holding forth salvation by grace alone 
You might be surprised that in our doctrinal standards of Westminster Confession of Faith, there is a chapter on good works. We're not saved by good works. We're saved unto good works. How are those good works identified for us? And is there such a thing as good works in the world? In the world, can people do good things? They can do good things to other people. They can't do good things that merit salvation. I don't think that's hard to understand. We get it messed up sometimes. We begin to think, oh, the good works that people do to other people in the second table of the law and being a good neighbor, love your neighbor as yourself. We tend to think, oh, those are the things that God will receive and that he will accept us on. And yet the scriptures over and over and over again make it very clear. No, he will not. The first table of the law is our duty to God, to worship God only. God only is God. We're not to love our neighbor like we love God. We're to love God exclusively. And we're to love God exclusively in the person of his son and our savior, the only mediator between God and men, and that is Jesus Christ. He's the only one who can save us. And his good works were the works for our salvation. And we receive his good works imputed to us. It's called imputed righteousness. An alien righteousness, a righteousness that was not our own, but one that we received by gift from God. That's how we're saved. That's how we're eternally secure. That's how we're made right with God. That's how we're reconciled. That's how we are born again. That's how we become Christians, followers of Christ. United, livingly with Him in a supernatural salvation. So make it very clear. When we talk about the doctrine of good works, we're not talking about salvation by good works. We're talking about those things that God in Scripture says are good. And he says they're good in application to the world in which we live. I mentioned the Westminster Confession of Faith. I don't have time to go through it this uh, morning, but I put it in your, in your notes this morning that if you were to start with chapter 16 of the Westminster Confession of Faith, there is the chapter on good works, but it doesn't end there. Because it goes on to make application about these good works and what they are individually and institutionally. So we go on from good works to chapter 19, the law of God. And then to chapter 20, of Christian liberty and liberty of conscience. And there's a very interesting comparison between the original text of the Westminster Confession of 1646 and the revised American edition of 1939. Uh, Again, I don't have time to go uh, into 1936. I don't have time to go into... uh, all of those interesting uh, discussions this morning, but I did want you to see them. When it comes to chapter 22 of lawful oaths and vows, there's still a difference between the two editions. Chapter 23 of the civil magistrate, a completely reworked uh, chapter from the original chapter over something you're probably not familiar with called establishments, but essentially important to understanding the First Amendment. Congress shall make no no laws respecting an establishment of religion. It's defined for us historically in terms of what's being said there. Um, You go on to chapter 23 of the civil magistrate. Uh, Did I just mention that one? Chapter 25 of the church. This is something I think is woefully shallow and missing in our day, and particularly in American uh, Christian uh, thought. And that is understanding the doctrine of the church of Jesus Christ. I've told you this many times. Uh, I'm never going to stop as long as the Lord gives me breath and gives me a memory. I'm going to continue to say, of what is Jesus the head? Jesus is the head of his body, the church. Of what is Jesus the bridegroom? Jesus is the bridegroom of his body, uh, I mean of his bride, the church. Of what is Jesus the king? Jesus is the king of his kingdom, the church. The mediatorial kingdom of Jesus Christ. The only way of salvation. But he doesn't save us and zap us out of the uh, world to heaven. 
He saves us and tells us to live here in His name. That's why we're concerned about these issues. How do we live in the name of Jesus, a Christian, bearing witness to God in His glory, witnessing for and praying His salvation in the midst of a sin-fallen world that interacts with all manner of creation ordinances that God has identified. So we turn to Romans chapter 13 this morning. Now, this is an introduction. I cannot give you a a, a detailed exposition this morning. Uh, I'm just giving you an overview, and I think that's valuable. I know sometimes we want to know the details, and I want to know the details. I like getting into the exposition by exegeting the text and, and getting to these points and application, but sometimes we need an overview so that we can keep the connection and we can see the big picture. And so that's what I'm intending to do this morning is to to give you a big picture, the kingdom of God and good works. So Paul writes here in verses 1 through 7, he bases his application about Christian believers' responsibilities under secular civil authorities on the argument from creator God's universal sovereignty along with the moral law defining good works. He tells us. So look at verses 1 through 7. Let every soul be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of God, and those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to evil. Do you want to be unafraid of the authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For he is God's minister to you for good. For if you do good... I'm sorry, if you do evil, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is God's minister, an avenger to execute wrath on him who practices evil. Therefore, you must be subject, not only because of wrath, but also for conscience' sake. For because of this, you also pay taxes, for they are God's ministers uh, attending continually to this very thing. Render therefore to all their due. Taxes, to whom taxes are due. Customs, that is, Um, uh, fees and revenues to whom uh, those custom fees and revenues are due. Fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. So the Apostle Paul bases his application here of the Christian believer's responsibilities under civil authorities on the argument from God the Creator's universal sovereignty. And this is along with the moral law defining for us what is good and what is good works. You see, the triune creator God is the ultimate source and the judge of all authority. And so here's something for you to think about. There will be an accountability to God for the king or whatever civil ruler there might be in his particular office, not only as an individual person, but also in his office. Let me bring that down a little bit. There will be an accountability to God for parents. Not only for their individual account, but also for their being parents. There will be accountability to children. Not only as individual children, but in response to and relationship to their God-given oversight of parents. Starts getting a little bit unsettling, doesn't it? There will be responsibility for spouses, husbands and wives. Not just individually, but also in their place in their uh, position as a husband and a wife because God speaks to that. It's very unsettling. 
begins to make us a little nervous. Begins to be, oh, preacher, go talk about something else. Talk about how we need to pray and be kind to that neighbor that lets their dog poop in our yard. Talk about that. We don't want to talk about these things because they're too uncomfortable. Well, further here, Paul tells us that the creation ordinance of secular authority, remember, I'm I'm not talking about secular authority with a bias. That's another question. But I'm talking about what God has ordained as a creation ordinance that is time and earth bound. So in terms of creation ordinance, there is time and earth bound authorities and God intends them for good order. But they are not inviolable institutions. Even the instituted ordinances of God, let's say in terms of civil authority, can violate God, what God says is good. That's one of the struggles that we have. You heard Elder Brown pray this morning about a civil government in which we find many troublesome things and the support that goes uh, from that civil government to many evil things. There are many evil things that are supported. And so we realize that even the ordinance of God by the sin of humans can be violated. So we're not talking about absolute. There is no absolute authority but only God. God is the only absolute good and holy and powerful authority that there is. He's sovereign. And so, yes, we face the reality that we live in this sin-fallen world even with God's creation ordinance of authorities and that they sometimes violate, grossly violate what God says is just and good. But they are earth-bound and they are accountable. And there are limitations and boundaries that God sets out in Scripture for our relationship and our response to those things. And that brings us to the next point, that good works identified and intended by the moral law serve not only as an external restraining power, that is a benefit and use of the law of God. It is an external restraining power when it is rightly used, not for salvation, and even in identifying what Christ has done in his sinlessness, but also in its external application as a restraining power. That is a witness from the law of God. But it also doesn't stop there. There's an inward conscience witness. And that establishes limited culpability. That's what Paul writes about here, about paying taxes to whom taxes are due, the fees and the revenues that are required by custom and and, um, business, and then fear and honor that you give to one another. So here, what do I mean by the external application and use of the law of God, not as a means of salvation, but in terms of what is good works and what is beneficial? In, the, in this secular world, secular authorities and structures in this world, and that is, for example, you pay taxes. But those taxes go to support many evil, ungodly things, don't they? God says, you're not culpable in that you're paying your taxes. So when those taxes are spent on evil and ungodly things, that doesn't mean that you're participating in it. Let's say you go to have an accountant keep your books. And you pay that accountant to keep your books. Unknown to you, the accountant also is uh, in business with human traffickers and drug dealers. And so when you pay him to keep your books, the money you pay him is also supporting him to do this ungodly evil thing. But you didn't know about it. That's the part about culpability that we're saying. There are limits, there are boundaries 
There is some measure of which you can take relief that you are obeying and, and serving and honoring God in what you do because you're not participating willingly or knowingly. You don't have the authority to deduct from your taxes what you don't think is legitimate. There's a lot of stuff I don't think is legitimate. There's a lot of stuff I don't want my taxes to go to support. You and I might be on opposite sides of, dare I say it, you and I might be on opposite sides of the fence when it comes to questions about immigration and what are our responsibilities and our care for the foreigner, for uh, the the illegal uh, undocumented people who are people in our midst. How do we find ourselves concerned about that and, and wanting a right answer to that and balancing that with our Christian compassion? It's not an easy question, is it? It's not an easy question. We as Christians may even have some different views on that. But can we find a recognition in terms of the limits of culpability and not call each other names because we don't agree? I told you I can't give a full exposition of the scripture this morning, but I do want to set it in its context. So I want you to back up with me to Romans chapter 12. You know maybe more about Romans chapter 12 than you do chapter 13. But I want to set it in its context because before addressing the issue of secular civil authorities, what does the Apostle Paul do? He gives urgent exhortations about how the mediating, saving grace of Christ transforms Christians, transforms Christian believers in terms of good works according to the will of God. Before he talks about this matter of secular authorities and the time-bound and and the the, uh, conflicted and difficult relationship that Christian believers have in terms of God's creation ordinances of authority. Before he does that, we have chapter 12. Look at verse 2 of chapter 12 when he talks about good works according to the will of God. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. That comes by transformation through Christ and his mediation. That comes first. That's what's most important to us. Look at verse 17. This is regarding morally good things generally identified by all people in the world. Verse 17. Repay no one evil for evil. Have regard for good things in the sight of all people. A general understanding of what's good and what's bad. And regardless of the uh, people who have gone to reprobate extents in their war in their minds against God, in general, we can say... We know what's good and what's bad. We know what is uh, a way of being good to people versus being uh, evil to people. So much so that look how Paul ends it in verse 21. That Christ mediating good effectually overcomes evil. And I'm calling you to believe that. Look at what he says in verse 21. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Temporarily and eternally. Now, I'm going to really... Try something here that is going to impress you. I'm going to read chapter 12, and I'm not going to expound on it. I'm just going to read it so you can get the context, okay? Follow along with me. Verse 1. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind 
that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. For I say through the grace given to me to everyone who is among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly as God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. For as we have many members in one body, but all the members do not have the same function, so we being many are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. Having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us, let us use them. If prophecy, let us prophesy. If in proportion to our faith or ministry, let us use it in our ministering. He who teaches in teaching, he who exhorts in exhortation, he who gives with liberality, he who leads with diligence, he who shows mercy with cheerfulness. Let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil, cling to what is good. Be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love in honor, giving preference to one another, not lagging in diligent, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, continuing steadfastly in prayer, distributing to the needs of the saints, given to hospitality. Bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not set your mind on high things, but associate with the humble. Do not be wise in your own opinion. Repay no one evil for evil, having regard for good things in the sight of all men. If it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Therefore, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap coals of fire on his head. Do not be overcome with evil, but overcome evil with good. Now those directives are given to us by the Apostle Paul about what it means to live as a living sacrifice to Christ in connection with his body, in the church, individually, collectively, how these things work out in terms of the the goodness of God, the good things of God, the good works of God, not for our salvation, but working in us a testimony to the grace of God and his salvation. And then he turns to chapter 13 about, oh, yes, and you live in this sin-fallen world with God-ordained authorities. These God-ordained authorities, in general, have application and accountability to the moral law of God, even if they violate it. That does not give you excuse. And so we looked at verses 1 through 7 of chapter uh, 13. I want to pick up with verse 8. The Christian believer has been supernaturally transferred into the mediatorial kingdom of Christ with a transformed relationship to the law of God by agape love. That's where Paul goes in uh, verses 8 through 10. You need to see this in context. We don't just finish uh, reading verses 1 through 7. We go on to verses 8 through 10 in terms of how we have a transformed relationship to the law of God. We have been transferred out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. And so the second table of the moral law applies to how we live in this world. Now, it's going to be interesting as we read this, you're going to see that that Paul actually uh, names the... uh, Commandments 6 through 10, the second table of law. The fifth commandment has already been referenced in terms of God-given authorities, like fathers and mothers, like kings and rulers. And there's a long-standing interpretation and application of Scripture 
that, that, that fifth commandment applies beyond just the family and extends on to God-ordained civil authorities as well, secular authorities that God has endued with legitimate authority. And so Paul has already referenced that in the opening of chapter 13. Now look at verses 8 through 10. He names commandments 6 through 10. Owe no one anything except to love one another, for he who loves another has fulfilled the law. Now, this love, this agape love, is defined by Scripture. It's not what you think or what I think it is. It's love, agape love, that's defined by Scripture. Verse 9, for the commandments. And here's where he names commandments 6 through 10. You shall not commit adultery. Remember I talked about the viability and application of the moral law in identifying good works, even externally? You shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. You shall not covet. And if there is any other commandment, all are summed up in this saying, namely, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. So this is what the Apostle Paul is telling us in terms of how we respond and live, even in view of secular uh, authorities that God has ordained, we have a transformed relationship to the law of God. But we still live in this world. We still live in this secular society and culture, this time-bound, earth-bound, with those creation ordinances and institutions that God has given. And so the second table of the moral law is universally good in this created world, but also is manifest to be like Christ's kingdom, the church. What is that? It is in this world, but it is not of this world, not of this world order. See, the moral law of God and and our Christian uh, presence here is not time-bound. We belong to a greater kingdom. We belong to a connection with Christ that is not limited to this earth. And so we continue to live as witness to what is universally good. It's manifest in the way that we as Christians are to live out our faith. And the testimony that we give to Christ and to the the witness that all will give an account to God in their various uh, places, in in their personal life, in their lives and offices and uh, applications in relationship to others. None of you lives the life of a hermit. None of you lives unto yourself. None of you lives separate from other people. None of you lives out from under the authority of God and the authorities God has appointed. We must all give an answer. We will all give an answer. I know that's unpopular. I know we don't want to hear it. I don't want to hear preaching on judgment, preacher. Well, I want to preach to you about who God is. And I want you to be aware and to know That this is the God, not only to whom we answer, but as Christian believers, this is the God whom we serve. He's left us here for a purpose. And he's given us direction for the way we are to live our life. In the last part of chapter 13, verses 11 through 14, Christian believers in this sin-fallen world are not co-redeemers. We're not talking about you're trying to save the world or to redeem culture. We're talking about being salt and light, Serving the Lord, being light, bearing the armor of God. Paul uses that very terminology and analogy here for how we are to go into the world in terms of serving the kingdom of light. And so we're not co-redeemers. This is something that has been confused 
and messed up in terms of talking about this uh, issue. But rather we are a sanctifying power of kingdom light in spiritual warfare, opposing moral darkness, confronting all domains of human relationships. Social relationships, cultural, political, educational, medicine, entertainment, uh, I don't know, we could go on, economic, all, all domains of human relationships, God's light and God's truth speaks into. So under the many crowns of Christ as creator and mediator throughout human history and around the globe, there continues to be sometimes more and sometimes less demonstrations of good overcoming evil. Do you believe that? I'm asking you as Christians this morning, do you believe that? Do you believe that throughout human history and around the globe, now, before and now, sometimes more and sometimes less, demonstrations of good overcoming evil and of gospel light greater than sin's darkness. Listen to verses 11 through 14. And do this knowing the time is now high time to awake out of sleep. For now our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. The night is far spent and the day is at hand. Therefore, let us cast off the works of darkness. Let's put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the day, not in revelry and drunkenness, not in lewdness and lust, not in strife and envy. But put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lust. That's the level at which we live as believers individually and collectively as the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. His kingdom. The kingdom of light. And so, we do this, as Paul says, knowing that our salvation is closer than we, when we first believed. Because time marches on, but time is under the sovereign domain of God. And so those secular time-bound institutions and ordinances that God has given, they will one day come to an end when Christ will deliver them up, having defeated and, and brought them under His control. He will deliver them up to the Father. That's what 1 Corinthians 15 tells us. And He is celebrated in the book of Revelation, as perhaps you may well know, declared that when the kingdoms of this world become the kingdoms of our Lord God Almighty and of His Christ. That's what we're preaching. That's what we're looking to. That's what I'm calling you to account for. Don't look today. Don't look down. Look up and look away. Christ is King of all. And we recognize and confess the sovereign majesty of God in His universal control and accountability to all humanity and all human history. If that's too big for you to grasp, that's good because you don't have the mind of God. God is unto himself, one and only uncreated God. We should be challenged. We should recognize. We can't put God into the box of our human understanding. We bow to him as sovereign God and creator. He is unto himself other. So don't be doubting because you can't figure it out. Worship him for who he is. And then our Lord Jesus Christ has received a kingdom from the Father. By his being prophet, priest, and king, the anointed one of God, he mediates that kingdom of grace and salvation out of which there is no possibility of salvation 
You only come to the Father through Jesus Christ and not by your good works, by his righteousness and fulfilling all the righteousness of the Father, even paying the redemption price for your sin's guilt. So we're not co-redeemers with Christ. We're not redeeming the world. We're putting on the armor of light. And we're to go forth. And I, I don't want to... I don't want to belittle the point here, but we're to go go forward like God's lightning bugs. Carrying the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ, believing the promise of God that light overcomes darkness. So let us be suitably armored with light of God's truth and word and hope and faith. And looking unto Jesus, the originator and the finisher of our faith, that he will rule till all his enemies are under his feet. He will deliver up the kingdom to the Father, and God will be all in all, because he is the Lord God Almighty. He's the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Now, I once heard of a Samaritan village where this happened. Have you heard of that? There was a Samaritan village where the the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ visited and that whole village was saved and changed. Do you think that can happen elsewhere? Do you think it has happened elsewhere? Do you think it will continue to happen whether you can see it or not? Do you believe that it's happening according to the will of God? I do. I want to continue this next week. It'll be the last installment as far as what I have planned. But I want you to consider something. You know about the parable of the Good Samaritan, don't you? And you've heard the story of the encounter that Jesus had with the perplexed rich young ruler. Well, next week I want us to look at those two passages of Scripture to understand that the kingdom of God, social good, is not the new covenant gospel. Social good is is not the new covenant gospel. But that doesn't mean they both are not taught to us in Scripture. What do you know about the parable of the Good Samaritan? You might want to think about that and revisit it. As a matter of fact, there's a very important connection between the parable of the Good Samaritan and Jesus telling it in response to questions he was asked. And there's a connection with what is said when the rich young ruler comes to Jesus. And how Jesus answers him. So I want you to be founded in the good faith. To understand the kingdom of God. Understand the difference between social good. But that it is not the new covenant gospel. This morning we'll turn to conclude our worship with our parting hymn, hymn number 